You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good and spring breaked up. Yeah. So look, so I'm just going to be honest with you guys because I always am. Um, those of you that were out of town last Sunday, if, if you did get frostbite or rained on, it's because we prayed for it here. Those of us that had to just be normal, mere mortals, just normal people and not be able to go on vacation. So that's on us and you are welcome. If you have your Bible this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 13. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 13. Um, and my name is Hank. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Church. And what we do here is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so uh, we start in verse 1 of a book and we preach all the way through it. And, and so this morning, this is where we find ourselves. I mean, so the content that you'll hear this morning is not because um, the elders here or I just went and watched the news and just sort of wrung our hands trying to figure out what to preach this Sunday or what to preach next. Um, it's, it's really simple how we approach it is once we... Um, come to a book of the Bible, we just preach what is next. And we think that that is, is helpful not only for, for us as teachers, but we also think it's helpful for you guys um, in the congregation because you're not caught off guard. You can look ahead. You know where we will be, um, and you can prepare yourself as much as you would like to do that. And so this morning... Uh, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 13. Last week we did one little verse, all right? And so if, if you are new with us, then I would encourage you um, 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 to go back and to listen to some of the prior messages just, just to be caught up, because there may be some things that I'm not able to to touch on as far as context and history um, uh, in, in this sermon for time's sake, because we've already touched on those things in previous Messages, And so I'm going to read to you, starting in verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 3 through verse 13. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, our fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things." is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness 
and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to be here today. We thank you that we have your word, and we consider this word to be authoritative. And so, Lord, as we look to your word this morning, we don't look to it haphazardly. Um, we come to it with humility, and I pray with an eagerness and a desire to know you more. But, Father, in, in order for that to happen, it, it's not dependent on, on my oracle skills. It's not dependent on the intelligence of those that can hear my voice. Um, we are heavily dependent on your Spirit to teach us. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come now. That you would shine your light so that we can see the truth and, and so that we can grow in grace and grow in knowledge of this truth that you've given us. And so, Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity, and really our greatest prayer this morning is that you and you alone are glorified. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, Ephesians 3, and if you have your Bible, you might just want to look back at verse 1 because it could be helpful. Um, it begins this way. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and, and, and what he's done there is he's, he's started a prayer. But this is just a, a broken, fragmented sentence. It has no verb. It has nothing in the original Greek. And then there's this, this dash where he just breaks it off. And, and I let you know, like, hey, I'm, I'm transparent with you guys as much as I can be, and you still let me come up here, right? Uh, it's, it's like a lot of times my prayer life is, is very similar to what it seems like Paul's doing here. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. And then there's some distraction that just kind of takes me off track and sort of derails the whole thing. And I mentioned last week that there's a huge difference in our being derailed and the reason that Paul's derailed here. This is a holy derailing. And so in verse 1 of Ephesians 3, he starts to pray for the Ephesians, and he doesn't pick up with that prayer until next week for us, but in the chapter until verse 14. And I, and, and I think the reason that Paul does this is because he, he wants to be sure. He wants to be sure that those that are reading this letter, uh, the first ones in the first century to read this letter, and, and for those of us today understood exactly what he was speaking of when he talks about this mystery. And this mystery is the reality that through Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile can be saved. And just for clarity, a Gentile is a non-Jew. And so if you're not an ethnic Jew this morning, guess what? You're a Gentile. And so it's really, really good news for us that the gospel is not just for the Jews, that it's for the Gentile as well. And so this is an abrupt stop as Paul wants to make sure that they are clear in understanding what we read in the last part of chapter 2 of this one new man that's made up of Jew and Gentile through Christ Jesus. I do want to remind you that Paul has personal experience and, and probably was what we would call a, a professional in hating other people. This Paul was formerly Saul. 
and on the way to persecute and to kill, and he'd already participated in this prior to his conversion, but on the road to Damascus, on the way to persecute and kill those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and were preaching this gospel of a resurrected Lord, the Lord Jesus met him, and he saw more blind than he'd ever seen with his eyes open once Jesus revealed who he was to him. And, and, and so I think that factors in. I think Paul understands the depth and the layers to this type of hatred, particularly the hatred that the Jew has for the Gentile and the Gentile has for the Jews. So he knows how difficult it is, especially for the Jew, to allow the Gentile equal status before the Lord. And so God's grace was given to Paul so that God's grace could be shown to the Ephesians. Look at verse 2. He says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, watch this, friends, for you. Now, I think it's worth noting that Paul must have had a really good middle school football coach because he doesn't just assume. As far as I'm going with that, if you played football and you had a good coach, he probably taught you the problem with assuming something. So he doesn't just assume and continue with his prayer. He's assuming this, but he also acts on and wants to be sure that his assumption is right. But this stewardship of God's grace that was given to Paul was given specifically so that it could be given to the Gentiles. In fact, if you have your Bible, I want to ask you to turn back to Acts chapter 26, where you can see specifically... Paul's account of his conversion in Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 20. And part of this will be on the screen behind me, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 12, and I'm reading from the ESV. And so this is when Paul is before Agrippa. He's, he's imprisoned, and he's um, asked to continue to move forward in this court, in this trial. And so this is where he finds himself. And so in verse 12 it says, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, he's speaking to Agrippa, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And we had fallen, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. In verse 15, and I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now listen to his commission. This is what I wanted you to see. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so in Ephesians 2, when Paul says of this, or, or he speaks of this stewardship of God's grace that was given to him for the Ephesians or for the Gentiles, he's literally referencing when he saw the resurrected Lord face to face on the road to Damascus, and Jesus told him that he is appointing him for this purpose 
to take the gospel not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentiles for the purpose of opening their eyes and calling them from darkness into light. And so Paul saw his salvation not only as something personal, which it certainly was, but it was something that was to be passed on. He believed that he received grace so that he could show this grace to others. Now, pick up with me in verse 3. Remember, Paul likes to write these really long sentences. He's not big on periods. Um, he loves commas. And so this is the same sentence in verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, obviously, the key word here is, is mystery. And so what is this mystery? Well, verse 6, if you look down at verse 6, verse 6 tells us what the mystery is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Look down at verses 11 and 12, and you also see this mystery. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. And so the mystery for us that have been a part of Ephesians is no mystery. The mystery is that through Jesus Christ, there is this universal call for sinners, Jew and Gentile alike, to come to Him. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, every single human is on the exact same level. We're all on the same playing field. There's nobody who has an upper hand in regards to this salvation. And so that's what Paul is communicating when he says mystery. And to be clear, I think this is vitally important, at least it was for me in my study, to understand that this mystery is not a new thing. Paul's not making this up as he goes. And this certainly isn't what the Lord is doing. God's plan, eternal plan, has always been to include the Gentiles in salvation. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 through 8, it says this through the prophet Isaiah. He says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. Listen, verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now listen to verse 8. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, th this was a mystery. And the reason Paul calls it a mystery is because this hasn't been revealed. They don't fully understand. Isaiah doesn't even fully understand the magnitude or the depth of this promise that he is making to the people of Israel from the Lord. Maybe an even more familiar passage to you. Is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is the promise made to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Gentiles being grafted in, to use biblical language in Romans 11, the Gentiles being grafted into this salvation is not a new thing. The difference is, is that through Christ, this mysterious plan has been revealed. And what you'll notice throughout biblical history, which is actual history, throughout history, God has chosen to give dispensations or revealings of His grace at the times that He sees fit. He's on His timetable. And so at the right time, He showed that Jesus, through Jesus, this salvation included the Gentiles. Now, a side note here that I think is vitally important for us to understand, and this, this is a bit of a rabbit trail that I'm not going to really run very far down, but I do think it's worth mentioning. You might have noticed the language Paul uses here, and he uses two words particularly that I think we need to j just heed some warning on. And it's the word revealed and insight. The Apostle Paul, meaning that he, as an apostle, was commissioned by the resurrected Lord. He received a direct face-to-face -face commission from Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be an apostle. And if you walk that out, the implications of that are this. There are not modern-day apostles. According to Scripture, apostles are those who were taught directly by Jesus Christ. And so to be an apostle of Christ, why this is so important, means that you have the words of Christ. So apostles and prophets in Scripture can use the language God revealed to me and this is what He said, and they can use the language I've received special insight or revelation and this is what it is and it's from the Lord. I know for the most part people who use this language today have good intentions. But if somebody today tells you that God has revealed something to them, and they don't follow that up with chapter and verse, be warned. Be warned. Thus saith the Lord is closed. The Lord has spoken finally and fully and completely through the prophets and the apostles. Now, does this mean, am I trying to just divorce us from any sort of spiritual prompting or movement? No. But I am saying that all of our spiritual prompting, and if you're just dead set on using revealed and God's given me this special insight, be sure, be sure that it's in line with His Word. And you might think I'm overreacting. And I don't know if you guys are as interested, and this might bring a weirdness out in me. Don't let it scare you off. In cult, in, in cults as much as I am. But the reason I'm interested is, is this, this reason, because I go, how do people gain so much traction? How do religions that are clearly false and have started with a man hallucinating in a field gains so much traction that it becomes a major world religion. And when you go back and you study these massive cults and these smaller cults, 
at the heart of every single one of them is a man or a woman or a group of men or a group of women who use the language consistently, God told me to tell you. What that does is it creates this spiritual elitism. It puts them in a position of authority. And now someone other than Jesus Christ is your intercessor between you and God. It's dangerous, friends. It's dangerous. And so again, I'm not trying to like rain on your parade if, if you feel you have this special gift. But, but, but can we please at least, at least can we agree to be careful using the language that Paul uses about what's being revealed and what special insight you think you may have. And so our revelations, our insight comes from Scripture. Or to say it this way, our revelations and our insight come from Paul's, which is the reason he was appointed. Remember, he believes he received this revelation and this insight or this grace from God so that this grace could be poured out on Gentiles. And so this is a mystery in the sense of God revealed the reality of what was happening at the specific time that he desired to do that. I, I also love that Paul uses this sort of familial language and it helps us understand the intimacy of this union that is in Christ between us all is that we are members of the same body. Like, like there, are, there are hands on our bodies, there are fingers, there, there are feet, there are toes. And even though they're diverse and they're different and they have different roles and different purposes, they're still a member of the same body. And he uses this word partakers. And um, I, I don't know, some of you know me well enough to know that I'm, I'm pretty weird about germs. Like I was a germaphobe before it was cool. So <laughs> before the pandemic, I was not drinking after anybody. Anybody, nobody. I'm not eating. I'm not eating off your plate. Whatever. Like I don't. I'm, I've never. But but this image of partakers is literally, we drink from the same cup. And let me tell you, that's the level of intimacy that I'm not real familiar with. <laughs> we, we eat from the same loaf, and we're we're not going to be doing that here. <laughs> So, so, so it's going to be important for us to see this spiritually more than physically. But isn't that beautiful language? That we are members of the same body. We are partakers of the same promise of Christ in the gospel. And to use biblical language of cup and bread, we drink from the same cup that is Christ's blood. We eat from the same bread, and Jesus in John 6 told us clearly that He is the bread. Simply means we hold the same salvation. Now, verses 7 and 8, let's move on. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, that word just means servant, according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me, given me by the working of His power, verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. God's grace should 
humble us. And if you're familiar with Paul's writings, then you have picked up on surely that Paul understood grace. And we know that Paul understood grace because he lived with this profound sense of humble gratitude toward God. Notice that everything he's received, he understands it as what? A gift. 1 Corinthians 12, he even understands the thorn in his flesh as a gift of grace from the Lord. He sees it all as a gift. Paul saw his life as a gift and therefore he lived it as a servant or as a minister for the sake of others. If you noticed, he refers to himself as the least of all the saints. I'm a skeptical guy, so you kind of go, Paul, does he really believe that? Like at this point, come on, man. Like you're the greatest missionary to ever walk on the planet. You know some pretty rotten saints that are out there. I mean, you even had to walk away from a few of them. Right? You've had to confront a couple of them face to face at this point that we know of. I don't know if it's hyperbole or what's going on. But I think if anything else, at the bare minimum, it's an indicator, an, another indicator of how he sees himself. Paul has not forgotten who he was. And I don't think he's wallowing in his shame. He's wallowing in his guilt. I think he is still like on the forefront of his mind is the reality of what God saved him out of. And he lives in light of that grace. And, and, and so his position, and I don't know if this would be true of me. I don't know if it would be true of you. I'd like to think more highly of us. But for Paul, his position and place in redemptive history, which we would all agree is pretty high, it does not puff him up. It leaves him only to boast in Christ. And so whether this is hyperbole or not, I think the point is, is, is this. When you view yourself as the least of all the saints, there's not a saint you're not willing to serve. When you're not looking down your nose at anyone, there's nobody that you won't kneel down and wash their feet. Now the last part of verse 8. Is beautiful. It's all beautiful, but, but this particularly was beautiful for me this week. And so I'm just going to start at the beginning. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, comma, watch this, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This particular word, unsearchable, appears nowhere, nowhere outside of biblical Greek. You know what that means? Paul made a word up. <laughs> this is Paul's word. He made it up. I, I couldn't help but think of Brandon. I've been friends with Brandon for years, and he gets so excited at times, I, he makes up phrases and <laughs> makes up words. And I, and I thought, man, like that's what Paul's doing. When Paul thought about the glory of Christ, he could not, as he searched, you can feel him grasping throughout this entire letter to try to articulate and put together in words what he sees or what he has seen and what he believes and what he has experienced in the glory of Jesus Christ. And here, he just gives up on anything that he's ever known or learned and makes up a word as he reflects on the glory of the gospel. And what gets him to this place of just making up words is the reality of Christ. Brothers and sisters, Paul's all-consuming subject of proclamation, are you ready for this? Is Christ. 
in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He says this, Him, that's Jesus, we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. His all-consuming subject of proclamation was Christ in, in, in Philippians 1, 17 and 18. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Watch this. What then? This is Paul. He, he, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Do you, do you see what he's saying there? He's even going, hey, there are some sinners out there like me that are proclaiming Christ, and they're doing it out of pretense, and they're doing it for even some wicked motives at times. But he goes, hey, you know what? The main thing is this. Christ is proclaimed. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Actually, it might not be the... Yeah, the next slide. There we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 23 and 24. Listen to what Paul says. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The all-consuming subject of proclamation, according to Paul, is Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. The gospel is a truth that no one can ever learn by just looking at the trees or the mountains, or the ocean, as beautiful as they are. And as much as they reveal to us that there is a God, you can't look at the trees and look at the ocean and look at the mountains and be saved. Preaching Christ is not a truth that can be learned from nature. Preaching Christ is not a truth. Christ, the gospel, is not a truth that can be learned, please listen, from good deeds. Are they good? Absolutely. The gospel is a message. The gospel is made up of words. The gospel is designed to be spoken, to be told to neighbors, to be preached in churches, and to be carried by missionaries. The gospel is this. It's that God himself has decreed a way to satisfy the demands of his justice without condemning the whole human race. One of the ways that God has chosen to satisfy the demands of his justice is hell. That's one way that he settles accounts with sinners to uphold his justice. But, but God provided another way to satisfy his justice. And to use Paul's language here, this wisdom of God means that he has ordained a way for his love to deliver us from his wrath without compromising his justice. And if Paul was standing here today, we would go, Paul, what's this way? How has God shown this incredible love while also maintaining this incredible justice and righteousness? And Paul would say... Christ. 
he would say, fix your eyes to Calvary. Because at Calvary you see the love of God for sinners. But also at Calvary you see the holiness and the righteousness of God and the demands of that righteousness and that justice being met as God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, bled real blood, had real flesh that was broken and died a very real death and was placed in a very real tomb. It's Christ, church. You know, as a pastor, there's a lot of pressure, and, and, and we do as elders, we think about vision, we think about tactics, we think about culture, we think about all those things. They're not irrelevant. But when somebody says, hang, like, 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 what's the vision? Christ. We're going to preach Jesus until we see Him. Because we believe, as Paul believed, that the gospel is relevant. It applies. It is the only message that you can take into any context. And I have not been in any and every context, but I have been in some contexts that are incredibly dark. And I go in and I'm like, I have no idea what to say. But the gospel speaks with power into every context. And so, to be clear here, in, in our day and age, there's not a lack of preaching. There's not a lack of proclaiming. Where there is a lack is there's a lack of Christ in much of it. And I want us to be warned and understand that it, it appears to me in a country that seemed to be built on courage and bravery that, that sentimentalism sort of rules our day. Truth isn't supreme. How you feel is. Sentimental preaching may touch your emotions, but it's only the preaching of the gospel and of the word that will pierce your conscience and actually reach your soul. I am confident every time I step into the pulpit. And it's not because I think I'm the best preacher. I'm not even close. But I'm confident every time I step into the pulpit because I know as long as I have this open, there might be a lot better orders out there but there's nobody that'll preach a better gospel. And it's not just about preaching. This proclaiming is not just about what happens behind pulpits, brothers and sisters. If you're a Christian, this proclaiming is, is, is a part of who you are. It's a responsibility that doesn't just fall on, on me. It's a responsibility that falls on us together to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I came across this quote from Charles Spurgeon this week. I found helpful. The great Baptist preacher says, leave Christ out? Oh, my brethren, better leave the pulpit out altogether. If a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ's name in it, it ought to be his last. Certainly the last that any Christian ought to go to, to hear him preach. Verse 9, as he continues this thought, and he says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, 
who created all things. Now that, that's wordy and it's, and it's difficult and really in order to give this adequate time it's going to take you um, doing some study on your own. I, I don't have the time to give you everything that this verse gives you but one thing that I want to point out that I believe is important is that this pro, uh, proclamation of Christ or this preaching of the gospel or this expounding on the word of God sheds light on everything. And so again, Paul sees his responsibility as one who has received this revelation and insight from Jesus himself. He sees that, that he has a responsibility of helping those who haven't received this, who haven't heard this, who haven't understood the message of salvation, to see it. And he sees his ministry of, of preaching and proclaiming the Word of God as one that sheds Light and, and there is light that can only come through the preaching and proclamation of the Word of God. So, so two striking realities in verses 8 and 9, just to put a bow on this so I can move on. First one is this, the centrality of Christ to preaching. The centrality of Christ to preaching. Whether you stay at Covenant Church, whether you go try other churches, like, look, there, you can, this is basically like an ice cream shop of churches when you get in our region of the world. You can pick whatever flavor, whatever you like, or whatever you don't like. Like, you can be, and it's, I don't know how good this is, a consumer. You can have a consumer mentality when it comes to churches. But look, just like if you were going out for ice cream, you want there to actually be ice cream, right? And, and, and so if you tell me, hey, I want to hear the word preached, I want to hear the gospel, then wherever you land, be sure, be sure that Christ is preached. And the Word of God is opened. So the centrality of Christ to preaching, but also another striking reality is the necessity, and, and this is the idea of light being shown, the necessity of continued growth in knowledge of God and His ways. Second Peter 3.18 says this, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just meant to save. It's, it's not like just this one-time transaction where you go, okay, when I was a young kid, I prayed to receive Christ and I believed the gospel, and then you sort of put it on the shelf. The gospel is meant to be believed. It's actually something that we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel by design is meant to be preached over and over and over, heard over and over and over. And according to Romans 10, without preaching and without hearing, there can be no believing. And so we believe the gospel over and over and over again. So let's look at verses 10 and 11 and let's wrap this thing up. Still the same sentence. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before I enter into this last five minutes, I want to be really clear. When, when Paul says the church, and when we say the church, we don't mean those who just attend services. We don't mean those who are just, or even members, or what we would call members, covenant partners. 
That's certainly part of it and a vital part of it. But when he says church, and therefore when we say church, what we mean are those who have believed in Jesus Christ as the only hope to save them from their sins through his blood, through his body. You have been adopted into a new family. This one new man that Ephesians 2 talks about. So when Paul says church, um, it's really hard for us culturally to, to fully grasp what he means. Because we think church and we think denominations and we think all these other things. But when he says church, he means those who have been adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? All right. But God has this manifold wisdom that he desires to make known. And did you see in verse 10 the vessel that he's chosen to use to make known his manifold wisdom, his gospel, ultimately his glory? The church. Me. You. Not just me. Not just you. Us. Together. There's no sentence in here that says, but if they can't do it, then I'm going to do this. He doesn't give Paul a plan B, C, or D. Plan A. The plan. The mission ordained before any of us ever existed or before any of them ever existed was for God's manifold wisdom and glory and grace and love and nature to be shown in this age through His people. How much thought and, and again, I'm not speaking now. No. Trust me, I know you probably wouldn't believe me at this point, but I see myself similar to what Paul said as the least of all the saints. And so I'm asking myself as I unpack this in my study, I'm going, D -d -d do I believe this? I mean, does it cross my mind that being a part of the church of Jesus Christ is the single most important thing that any human being could ever be a part of? And it's always been that way. There is a single purpose for the reason that every single one of us still have blood in our veins and breath in our lungs. And it is to display the wisdom of God that He's shown through Jesus Christ. Do you struggle with purpose? you struggle with boredom? Whether you work inside the home or you work outside the home, are you dreading tomorrow? Same old, same old. Wait a minute. Like, pump the brakes. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no greater purpose that you could have. That God woke you up this morning. He'll wake you up, Lord willing, in the morning. And you'll put your feet on the floor and you'll have breath in your lungs for the greatest purpose that you could ever have. And that is to show the goodness and the glory of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul saw that. You go, how in the world could Paul fight through imprisonments and beatings and all that he went through? Because he saw that his existence was all about Christ. Don't know what that was. 
Zach, did you throw that in my late? Is it time? Where, where did that come from? He saw that his existence was all about Jesus Christ. I want to read to you our mission statement. Some of you may know it. I'm not going to ask you if you do. Covenant Partners. <laughs> Here it is. We exist to make known. By the way, it's always been this. We exist to make known the life-changing power of Jesus Christ by our words, our worship, and our works. The gospel compels us, and not only does the gospel compels us, we are commanded by the Lord in His Word to show the wisdom of God to the universe. Did you notice, like, who's watching this? Authorities in the heavenly places? Like, we'll get into more of the spiritual realities when we get to Ephesians 6. But it's not just the human beings that we see. Like there are these spiritual forces that are there. And I think some that are on the Lord's side and some that have fallen from His side and that are evil that would be classified as demons and even Satan himself. We show the manifold wisdom of God to them. So when we live in the way that the Lord's called us to live we are displaying and showing that our God is wise. His plan is wise. And, and brothers and sisters, if you're like me, I, I rarely hit a target I'm not aiming at. Our aim is to be the same as God's aim. His glory in making Him known through our words our worship, and our works. The universe, the cosmos, are watching. And, and so, believer, I think, I think we have to ask ourselves, if, if you are a Christian this morning, do we live with a profound understanding that we exist to glorify the Lord? Just a simple question. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm not trying to sucker punch you. I'm not like shooting guilt bombs from the, from the stage here. But I want to be real. And I want us to be honest with ourselves. I can't say what I just said, and, and we can't read what we just read without pausing. If we care anything about the glory of God, if we care anything about being a Christian, or, or, or towards what it means to be the church, we have to stop and ask ourselves, do we live with a profound sense of what it means to belong to Jesus? Also, do we see because I believe Paul did, do we see our church family as the primary place that we minister the gifts of grace that God has given us? Because remember, this isn't me and you as individuals. This is us. We together exist to display the manifold wisdom of God to the cosmos. And, and, and within that, and one of the ways we do that is the way that we love one another and serve one another. And as we have received grace from the Lord, we just can't wait. And we're eager to show that grace to others. When that happens, the body of Christ is desirable to the world. Jesus told his disciples, 
love one another as I've loved you. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. Boy, we focus a lot on evangelistic tactics, right? So be it. Seems to me one of the greatest evangelistic tactics is how we love one another and serve one another and, and use the gifts of grace that God has given us, uh, um, us as individuals to give to one another. And so, believer, there's plenty for us to ponder. But if you're here this morning, you say, Hank, I don't, I don't know the Lord. I'm seeking. I'm wondering. I do long for a, a greater sense of purpose. Well, according to verse 12, through Jesus Christ, and it's only through Jesus Christ, you have access to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's no way you will gain access through your own righteousness or through your own efforts or through your own works. The only way that anybody gains access to the Lord and finds this purpose is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And when your faith is in Jesus Christ, you do receive the boldness and the confidence that Paul speaks of in verse 12. And it does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that your life will be just tulips and roses from there on out. Or you just skip off into never, never land happily. Like, no, no. It doesn't necessarily mean anything about your circumstances changing. But now you have this perspective and this purpose and this meaning in life that transcends any earthly purpose that you could ever come up with on your own. It's that you belong to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. And Lord, I pray in these final moments that it, um, as your spirit works, as your word was proclaimed, God, that you would be glorified for the believer, that we would be challenged and prompted and, and encouraged in your gospel. We God, if there's one here that doesn't know you in a personal way, oh, Father, I pray that you would save them, that their eyes would be open to the truth. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.